Uh, my name is James Painter. I'm from the Reuters Institute uh, for the Study of Journalism here in Oxford. I just want to welcome everybody. On behalf of all those organisations at the back, I'm not going to read them out, uh, but it's uh, a great pleasure to have you all here. Just by way of introduction, what's the backdrop to this event? Uh, many of you may not know that for several years, the Reuters Institute and the School of Geography through DCI have organised a series of really interesting and productive uh, workshops whereby we get a whole lot of journalists from all around the world to come together and discuss uh, with the budding scientists from the MSE course. And the essential aim is to promote dialogue and better understanding between journalists and scientists so that at the very least uh, journalists understand a bit more about complexity, risk and uncertainty and that uh, scientists understand at least what the top line is. So we're trying to, in the spirit of those <coughs> events, uh, keep the same spirit of sort of thoughtful dialogue uh, for this event as well. And like all the previous events, this event will be recorded, uh, will be videoed and put on uh, the websites of the Reuters Institute and the ECI so that several scholars who are studying climate change and media will have it as a reference point. Uh, and that also many people who couldn't come will be able to uh, uh, have access to it. Um, we're very, very fortunate, as I'm sure you know, that we've got four of the UK's uh, leading uh, environmental environment sound, uh, correspondents, I should say, or uh, uh, analysts. Uh, I say UK, but of course, increasingly now, they are, have very strong uh, international voices because of their online presence. Um, I'm going to hand over to Fiona Fox, for those of you who don't know, is the director of the Science Media Centre. She's going to chair the event. Um, the Science Media Fiona blogs on the issues around climate change and media in a very appealing way. So if you don't know her blog, go to it. You can get access via uh, uh, the Science Media Centre. And also, for those of you who don't know, the Science Media Centre uh, have produced a very good report called Securing the Future, if I'm, if I'm right, about the state of science reporting in the media. So, Fiona, over to you. Okay, thanks, James. Um, I'm really excited about chairing this debate. Uh, the Science Media Centre was set up um, after GM and BSA and things that went wrong in the media. So the whole climate gate thing has been driving us to distraction um, since late last year. And when I've been kind of dying to in interrogate our science and environment correspondents, so when James sent me an email saying, would you chair this and ask questions to four prominent environment correspondents, the answer was, is the Pope a Catholic? So uh, I know that's very self-indulgent, and I hope you enjoy yourselves as well, but I know I'm going to enjoy myself. Um, so what I'm going to do is introduce the speakers and then the format of the evening is that I get to interrogate them for about half an hour, how exciting is that, and then reluctantly I come out to you for an hour and you can ask them anything you want to or indeed make short contributions. There's a lot of you here so all I'll ask you to do is be brief, but uh, nothing is ruled out in terms of questions or contributions. So let me just introduce our four speakers. Uh, Richard Black is, covers environmental issues for BBC News, primarily for the website, but also for national radio. Most of his career has been spent in BBC World Service reporting on scientific and environmental affairs and presenting programmes with a similar brief. David Adam has been environment correspondent for The Guardian since 2005, before which he was science correspondent for two years. Previously worked at the science journal Nature 
and tells us that he decided on a career in journalism after a PhD in chemical engineering convinced him it was more fun to write about other people's research than to carry out his own. <laughs> Fiona Harvey covers all the environmental issues for the Financial Times. She's twice won the Foreign Press Association Award for Best Environment Story in 2005 and 2007 and was named Environment Journalist of the Year at the British Environment and Media Awards in 2007. So very much an award-winning journalist. And Ben Jackson was appointed Environment Editor of The Sun a year ago, which we championed and said, how exciting is that? That um, There's quite a bit of a myth around that science journalism is in decline. In fact, The Sun felt that it was necessary to have a science and health person and a dedicated environment reporter. So we thought that was very exciting. Uh, Before that, he was Features Editor of the paper. Uh, Just one thing to say is that the speakers themselves, the journalists themselves, will tell you whether they're speaking to you in a personal capacity or as representatives of their paper, because I'm confused about which one speaking is which, so they can explain that to you if they speak. Right, let the interrogation begin. So, the first question, it was prompted by something James Hansen, the leading NASA climate scientist, said in the last couple of days, where he accused the media of doing a great disservice to the public, not to science, to the public, in the way you've covered climate gates. Others, too, have blamed failing public support for climate change, as shown in recent polls, on the way the media have handled all this. So the first question is about how you see your role, the media's role, in relation to public opinion on climate change. Is it your responsibility, and I use that word very carefully, your responsibility to ensure that the public think the right way on this. And privately, when you go to bed at night, does this responsibility for influencing public opinion weigh heavily on your shoulders? David, do you want to kick us off? Science tools by microphone. Five stools, five microphones. I feel a bit like uh, Westlife, but I promise you I'm not. Wow, what a big question. Um, I think I would make two first points. Um, The first, that you can't just generalise about the media in a way that you can't generalise about the scientists or black people. Um, I think there is uh, diversity within the media. There's certainly diversity within The Guardian. Um, I wouldn't begin to speak on behalf of my newspaper. Um, I think that there are different opinions within The Guardian on this issue, and there are different opinions between newspapers on this issue and between different media outlets on this issue. So. I think we should be careful about categorising or generalising about the media in general. Now, in specifics, when it comes to me, do I feel a responsibility? Well, I suppose I feel a responsibility, but I don't feel a responsibility to the public thinking the right thing on climate change, whatever that is. Um, I think it's my responsibility to... I think as a journalist, what we have is access, and I think we can ask questions and get answers that other people cannot. Um, And I see it as my responsibility to to ask those questions and to present the answers and to provide, I suppose, the evidence to allow people to hopefully make up their own minds on what they think the right decision is. Now, 
again, just breaking that down a little bit, I think that there is a right decision when it comes to uh, is does the science, does the balance of scientific evidence just show that man-made climate change is a reality? I think that the, the answer to that is yes, but there's a whole load of other questions on, uh, based on that about what policies should we bring in to try and deal with that, which um, I think are, are, are very open, um, and I think that for us to pretend that there is a right way of thinking on how to deal with this problem is partly the reason why I think we get accused of shielding people from what they think of as the other side of the debate, because people confuse, I think, the reality of uh, the science with the suggestions of policy. Okay, thank you. Richard? Um, well, uh, go back to the Westlife comparison. Most of what I'm going to say is going to be in harmony uh, with what, uh, what David, he, he, where, where he leads, I'll, I'll follow. Uh, a, a minor third below. Um, uh, m most, most media organisations are commercial, and as such, they have one responsibility, which is to their owner. Um, an example of this, if you go back to the invasion of, uh, of Iraq, the uh, Daily Mirror started off being opposed to that on principle and presumably wanting to tell people or inform people of the right point of view as, as they saw it. It wasn't popular, readership declined, they changed position. That is the reality facing most of the media. Uh, the BBC is in a different situation, but it's not actually that different because editors still want you know, to have lots of people watching their programmes and listening to the programmes and reading web pages and so on. So we, t we are to a certain extent, are also sort of um, forced down that avenue of sort of seeking popularity to, 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 a, to a greater or lesser degree. Um, in terms of responsibility, again, I would agree with, with, with David, it's very difficult to pin down on many issues that we cover what the right way of thinking is, and, and I see uh, my role definitely, or part of my role definitely, as, being, as, as presenting things as they are in all their great diversity and their great complexity as much as possible, and letting people make up their own minds. It's definitely not. I don't think our role to proselytise and try and try and try and tell people how they should think about this. Um, and there are other examples, uh, other issues to cover that exemplify this particularly. I mean, I, I, used to, I still I cover whaling quite a lot, um, for example. Now, a lot of people in this country have a very, very definite view of whaling, and yet you go to some other cultures, and their view of whaling is completely the opposite. So if you try and pin down what is the right way to think on whaling, you're absolutely wasting your time, I think. It's completely wrong for you to do. Okay. Fiona? Um, sorry, do I need to do I think you cross that to the <coughs> board. Is that better? Um, That's worse. That's worse. <laughs> 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 we can all cluster around this, don't we? Okay. Um, as for influencing public opinion, um, I don't feel any responsibility towards um, public opinion. Um, what I feel responsibility towards is my readers and the facts. And my job is to present the facts to my readers um, as clearly and as objectively as possible. And we're very fortunate at the FT that um, that's what we're allowed to do because people read us because they want to be well informed and some people read us because they want to make investment decisions and so they need accuracy. Um, and so whatever we present to them has to be uh, has to be rock solid in terms of its accuracy. And it also has to be <coughs> as scrupulously fair as possible. So unlike other papers, we don't do spin. 
uh, or we try to adopt it, <coughs> um, you can argue that you know taking any kind of angle of the story is, is spin, but I think we can take that too far. Um, and we present when we present an argument, we try to present all sides of an argument. And when we present a problem, we don't just present a problem. We don't just say, you know, climate change is really awful. We, our readers are very sort of can-do people. They're people who think of themselves as having, a, you know, a, a significant role in the world um, and an ability to change things. Uh, and so they want to be presented with uh, possible solutions as well as problems. And so we are always very careful to do that. Um, to go back to what you said from James Hansen, in the reporting of Climategate, I think there has been irresponsible reporting, definitely. I think some people have said things that uh, are badly researched, uh, that are true, uh, that are distorted, uh, and I think that has been very poor. No one here. <laughs> no one here, don't worry. But um, <coughs> you know, I, I think that has happened. Um, and some people have um, you know, taken this story as an opportunity uh, to present uh, a sceptical point of view. In some respects, that's fair, because part of this story is about uh, you know, the, the resurgence of the climate change scepticism and we've got to report that. But at the same time, I think we've got to be very careful in reporting uh, what the mainstream scientific view is. <coughs> so I feel a responsibility towards that. Okay. Ben? Um, I thought Hanson was a boy back. Have you seen James Hanson and a boy back? Boys and girls. That's right. continued. I think it's a really interesting question for the song. Um, t 20 years ago, um, if the issue of climate change came come out, I think the sun would have been, uh, a, a, as a paper that is usually uh, not short of an opinion, I think we would have um, decried it and said straight away, you know, we would have been hardline sceptical and, uh, and dismissed it out of hand and, uh, and really, uh, I think, railed against any government or scientist who, who put it forward as, as something that is perhaps, um, you know, difficult to prove. Um, in, in a in a um, in a um, in a way that is very specific and difficult to come up with hard evidence that people can hold in hand <coughs> and show you. Um, so I think twenty years later we're probably uh, in a position where we are probably more sure of um, ourselves in terms of it as a title. I think we're probably more interested in in uh, you know letting people have um, the benefit of the doubt in terms of the, the way the science is heading and seeing that um, our readers are, I think, it's our position to our readers that is interesting, I think, because before, while we've possibly been railed against change in some time, at some times, I think this time um, we're prob probably more interested in where this is going and seeing this as part of the future. That said... Um, in terms of what is the right way, what is the right way? Does it? And it, it doesn't sit well with, with me, or I can see any of these people here, my, my fellow panelists here, in, in terms of uh, the, the the meaning of that word. I think, um, in many ways, we channel this, both sides of the argument, and we we have to let those 
those do the talking, especially in an area where our expert, expertise in this isn't great enough to be able to um, to be all completely authoritative. I think you have to speak to the experts wherever you can. So um, um, I, I, I think while James Henson probably dislikes what the media says, um, I think you could say plenty of skeptics are most unhappy with what the media says as well. Um, and if you're if you're not being criticised, I think then uh, then you're doing something wrong. Okay. Not too much responsibility taken there. Excellent answers, fascinating. But uh, it's certainly not the media's fault if public support for climate change is falling, according to our panel. Okay, another thing that you guys stand accused of is pretty specific, which is being slow to respond to UEA Gate and then Glacier Gate and all the gates. Um, is there any truth to that? Can you talk us through the kinds of discussions that went on in your newsroom about whether these stories should be covered at all or what kind of prominence they should have been given and do you think you've called it right or wrong? This is the bit where we really get an insight into how this stuff. Sure, you know you want to. And can I just say, because my own mobile phone has just gone off, which is outrageous, please turn your mobiles off. <laughs> Well, I'm going to kind of dodge the bullet a wee bit on this one because um, the climate gate emails were released on, I think, November the 18th or 19th. And on December the 1st, I had a baby. My wife had a baby. What an excuse. So I was on paternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> I was on paternity leave pretty much the whole of December, uh, which included, you realise, of course, the, the Copenhagen conference. That's what I call family planning. I <laughs> know, um, I... I, I to answer the question, I, well, I can I give you a personal insight what happened. I was at home, I was working at home, and I got a phone call <coughs> that these emails had come out um, and that there was a potential big story in there because the climate skeptics were jumping up and down about um, a trick that was hiding a decline in temperatures. I, when they said it was East Anglia, I knew it was this the Phil Jones and the climate audit spat, which, which I've been aware of for years. Um, and and I, I, although I wasn't working, I just said, look, <coughs> just, just be careful. This has been going on for a long time. There's a huge agenda here. Um, a lot of this has been gone over time and time and time again. Um, just just, just be, be careful. Um, and I don't think we did too much. I certainly, certainly don't think we were slow to react. I think we had something on the website within hours um, and, and then, then there was some subsequent discussions the following week about had we done enough on it what, what more should we do because the, the, what they call the blogosphere was, was jumping up and down about this of course um, and there is a tendency to one of the loneliest places in the media is, uh, is when everyone else is doing a story and you're not uh, the only lonelier place is when you're doing a story and nobody else is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there was the, the word the word that was used was engage. We have to engage with this story somehow, which I think is absolutely correct. Uh, it's, it's a big story. It's out there. It's being discussed. We can't pretend this this wasn't happening. And so we did uh, quite a measured piece, I thought, just looking at what the impact of this might be and a breakdown of some of the emails and what 
my take on, on, on a few of them. Well, now, I, I, I did stress to the news editors at the time that the danger in doing this was, however measured our coverage, was that it creates this illusion, to my mind, of, of a controversy, this sort of manufactured doubt, which is what, when the climate skeptics were, I, I sort of characterise it as I think most of the bad people have gone out of the climate skeptic arena, and I think we're left with mostly the mad people. Um, but certainly, you know, 10 years or so ago, there was serious money behind this manufactured doubt issue, and, and um, which is, of course, as you know, just the idea that if it, people look like they're discussing an issue, then there's, there's something worthy of discussion, which in this case was whether climate change was true or not. Um, and so I did say, you know, just, just, we just need to be aware of that, but, but I think we engaged with it. And then I went off on paternity leave, and then uh, the Guardian published <coughs> in uh, late January or early February a whole string of, of, uh, of, of articles about the emails, which again I think was driven by a desire to engage with the story, to, to look at this um, in, a, in a serious way. Um, and um, well, I think I'm on the record of saying I think a lot of the coverage probably overinterpreted some of the issues, um, and it, that was across the media. And most of the misinterpretation, I think, was on websites and in other <coughs> newspapers. Certainly, a lot of the stuff about whether this cast any doubt on climate science. I don't think the Guardian did that at all, to its enormous credit. Um, and I think that what drove the story then was a desire to for it to be a story almost. Yeah. I think the the collapse in the, uh, the, 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 um, the ending of the Copenhagen talks in the way that they did almost created a vacuum, a, a need for stories on, on climate change. And, and these emails came along at the perfect time. They hit a wave, um, and, and they got coverage because of that. Um, okay. <coughs> Thanks, yeah. I mean, the, the whole Climate Gate thing, in a sense, uh, whoever stole the emails, in a sense, they've already won that point because we're calling it Climate Gate. And the, the, the fact that we're using this title suggests that some sort of decision has been made at some sort of subconscious level in society that this is a serious issue. I think, in fact, it presented, the, 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 it was a very difficult story for media organisations to cover this one because you had to invest quite a lot of time and effort in actually going through the, all the emails and all the documents if you were going to do it properly. <coughs> and time spent going through email, those emails and documents meant time that you couldn't spend on doing other things. And of course, in the run-up to Copenhagen, it was an exceptionally busy time. Now, perhaps what we could have done um, was to you know, uh, take one person and say, right, you sit down and you read through all the stuff, and that's your job for the next four days. But the reality is we're not resourced to do that, and I don't think many organisations are. The people that were quick on the draw and accusing organisations like, like ours of being slow on the draw are the ones that didn't bother to read the stuff before spouting what they said, because it suited their political ends to do that. You know, it, again, it's, it's not so much uh, the sort of manufacturing the appearance of doubt. It's, in this case, it's manufacturing the appearance of a cover-up, the, the appearance of a scam. And they don't need to read through all the emails in order to do that. They just need to read through maybe three, find one thing they don't like, put it out there with a label like Climate Gate. In retrospect, probably we should have done that. As you know, looking back on it, looking also looking back on the IPCC report back in 2007, possibly we should have you know uh, have, have taken taken one of our staff and said, right, you sit down, read through the whole thing, check all the references. 
But I've, I've discussed this with my editor, and she was quite explicit, and, and I agree that had we suggested that at the time, we would have been laughed out of court. What, you want to spend two weeks sitting on your ass reading through this report? Why? Waste of time. Go and cover other stories. Um, <coughs> so, were we slow to react? I, I don't think we were. We had a story up before any of the other mainstream uh, media organisations. There are a few blogs that appears to, and we've since followed it up time and time again. But part of the attack on climate science, certainly with the BBC, is mirrored by the way the BBC is attacked. There is an interest in saying that we're slow. There's an interest in saying that we're, we're, we're not covering these things. Because then it promotes this, um, this kind of uh, vision, I suppose, <coughs> this, this image that we're somehow biased and we're somehow you know, following an agenda. We are pawns. Media organisations are pawns in this big political game just as much as scientists are. Um, on, on the Himalaya gate, we actually had a story up on that on the 5th of December, um, coming out of our, of our Delhi bureau. Um, and yet we're still being accused of not having covered the story, which is extraordinarily weird. And um, it's perhaps down to the fact that another newspaper uh, you know, claimed to have broken this story when they did it in January, sort of six weeks after we did. And of course, we didn't follow it up because we'd already done it. Um, I'm just going to take the, uh, the emails first. Um, we, when we got the uh, story about the emails that they've been uh, put up on uh, online, um, I talked to my editors about it, and they decided that we didn't have time before our deadlines uh, to actually uh, check out whether these emails were true and so on. Um, so we didn't cover it immediately because we, if we cover something, it gives it authority. Uh, and so we have to make sure that it's absolutely, as I said, cast iron. Um, so we didn't cover it immediately and we sort of checked them out and so on. We covered it a few days later. Um, on the, the glacier, the Himalayan glacier stuff and the, all the RPCC things that followed, um, I'm just going to tell you a story that illustrates how, what utterly horrible places in these papers are. Um, because this business about being slow to respond, um, that was something of which, uh, of which, um, that, that was something my editor said in an email to <coughs> the FT saying that we had been slow to respond to the Basically, story, and that email was actually republished in the Guardian. Thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was one of those occasions when I, you know, you, you know, I just wanted to stab myself in the eye because what had happened was that when that story broke, and it was in the New Scientist on the New Scientist website, and I spoke to our editors, our world desk editors. And I said, you know, this was happening. And they said, we've got no room. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we've done, we did so many climate change stories, you know, in, in Copenhagen, you know, we, we, we've got no room for this one. Um, and uh, so they, they ignored it. And then I said, well, you know, we should try and do something on it, you know, got picked up in other papers and so on. And they said, uh, write a story for the web. So I, I wrote a story for the web. <coughs> what happens is that when things go on our website, uh, the stories that have been in the paper get prominence and the stories that have not been in the paper get lost um, and no one sees them. And this one didn't even go up for two days because 
I don't know, because that's the kind of bloody, bloody thing that happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, then I got a call on a Sunday saying that, um, you know, that the, the editor had been complaining in conference that we didn't have any stories on this case yourself, half, and, you know, everyone else had it. So I said, fine, I will spend my Sunday writing a story on this, that's fine. I wrote it. When it appeared in the paper, it had been so messed around with and macerated that it wasn't a story about the, the glaciers and everything anymore. It was a story about something completely different with a paragraph about glaciers at the end. So the next day, the editor says, why don't we have anything on this story? <laughs> and I said, I've been trying. What happens is, what happens is that this, I don't expect the editor directly because he's, he's far too grand. So, um, he goes into a conference with all of his editors, the editors of each desk, and I, I bet, I'm pretty damn sure that when the editor sits, you know, at the top of the table and says, why didn't we have this, I bet there's none of those editors in that room put their hand up and said, well, Fiona Hardy offered us some stories on it, but we declined. <laughs> really have a feeling that didn't <laughs> So... It gets really, really frustrating. And, I mean, why? Because newspapers are dysfunctional. Um, they are. They, they can never be anything other than that because it's the nature of what they do. And so, you know, this business about being so to respond, yes, it happens. Um, and it just makes you want to cry. <laughs> and here I was worried that they wouldn't say what they thought. <laughs> ben, how long do you and your colleagues spend discussing Climate Gate and where it should be in the sun? Well, um, you'd be pleased to know that the sun isn't quite as Python-esque as the FT. I don't know. <laughs> um, on the uh, Climate Gate, we had uh, a story in the paper on the 21st. I think that was... Uh, I think the story sort of uh, broke... Possibly on the twentieth, pretty much the day after. The weekend's papers were, um, it, 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 as I recall, broke quite late. And and really, uh, um, uh, Richard and David and Fiona answered pretty well. Really, that this is the story that wouldn't die. We were all looking the other way. We were all looking at Copenhagen, thinking this is the moment the world's going to change because. We've been, you know, running up this hill all year, and suddenly these emails come from the other direction, and uh, and I think, you know, people were caught napping a little, partly because of the volume of emails that were there, partly because um, they were facing what they thought was something far more important anyway, and um, and and also, as Richard says, because. To, to actually go through it in any detail, and, and let me make clear, the sun wasn't about to do this, um, to go through it in any detail, you do need to throw a big team of people at it, and, and, and a big team of people you know, with, with the you know, expertise and knowledge to, <coughs> to go through these emails and, and understand the language that they're talking about. And um, you know, the fact is that it was a story that kept reappearing throughout December. When we were in, uh, in Copenhagen, I remember every conference to started with, what are you know? What are you going to say about the climate gate, gate emails, Mr. Mr. Paturi? What are you going to say about every? It, you, they were worried in the first three days of Copenhagen that every press conference was going, to, was going to be overshadowed by these emails. So people were asking them about them. They weren't. They just simply weren't going through the text uh, of all the emails themselves. But I do. I do think there was one thing about the um, the emails that slightly disturbed me, and that was I think Fiona might have been there as well. There was a press conference about three or four days after with Lord Stern, 
and we and it was about the economy, uh, the economics of climate change and how much it was going to cost, and you know, to, to, for, for um, in, uh, over the next hundred years, and it, it was it was very sort of interesting, worthy uh, press conference. Uh, um, but uh, at, at the beginning of the question and answer session, somebody stood up and said, uh, "No, we don't want any questions about the UEA email space from anyone." Uh, and and uh, and all um, jaws dropped. Uh, how can you not? How can you not face up to a question on, on something that is so fundamental? And in the end, um, uh, because a few of the journalists have uh, climate journalists have the sort of um, rebellious streak that you see in Fiona. That's all the questions were, and they ended up just having to um, to to answer. But I thought it was a it, it was a strange tack to say, well, you can't ask you can't ask a question. And I think that's slightly indicative of how the climate lobbies responded at the moment. Initially, is no, this is we're bigger than this. You can't question us. And I really think, you you know, looking back, we need to ask questions, and we need to be able to face those questions head on. Okay, um, I'm running out of time for my Sorry. bit, which I think is tragic. Um, so I'm going to ask, I've got about eight more questions. I'm going to ask two more, and I'm going to ask them together, and you don't have to answer both of them. Is that good? And then I promise I'm coming out to you. Um, just on sceptics, um, David's already been rude about them. Uh, the bad ones have disappeared, the mad ones are what remain. I mean, where, where does this leave us in terms of sceptics? People like John Bennington, the Chief Scientific Advisor, and Mike Hume from uh, UEA, have kind of come out and said that we've probably been too hard on sceptics in the past and a, a kind of censorious approach to certain sceptics in the media may have contributed to some of the backlash we're now seeing. Uh, so what do you reckon about, are we going to see more, are they here to say, even the mad ones, are they going to get the limelight, are you still going to fight, uh, Richard, like I know you have done for some years, that we don't have this scenario where every time a scientist who spent 10 years on a scientific study wants to promote that on the BBC, they have to be met with Bjorn Lundberg. Where are we with sceptics? Where do you think it's going? Uh, and then my second question absolutely leads on from Ben's final point there, um, and I think very relevant for this audience. Um, what do you think the scientists should be doing differently? Um, what, what should they have been doing differently in the last few months, and what should they do differently in the next few years? I think some of you have read my blog may know that I was, I was actually a bit upset that the scientists who braved the media in the middle of the frenzy and spoke at the SMC briefing were attacked for shock horror sticking to the science in the science media centre. That's kind of what you're saying, Ben. They wouldn't, they, we, we certainly, you would never ever hear the SMC say no questions allowed about anything. But actually they didn't uh, answer Ben Webster's question about whether Pachauri should resign. They refused to answer specific questions about UEA emails. And there was almost every journalist, including David and Tom Field, and as they left, they all said to me, Fiona, I think you're really naive. The scientists have got to go further than the science now to win the argument with the public. So a panel of scientists who basically had told us what we definitely know, what we've known for hundreds of years about climate change, and what we don't yet know for certain, what's more immature, what's not, the science isn't in yet, uh, were basically criticised for that. That in, I think, as somebody said, I think it was Mike McCarthy from Union. Based on that performance, they're not going to win the public debate. And I think quite a lot of you guys think that that it's your responsibility. It's not theirs. Note, as they all said in the beginning, um, to keep the polls high. But scientists. So, two final questions, and then I shut up. 
Who wants to deal with them? And you don't have to deal with them. Yeah, I can do um, that fairly briefly. Skeptics, um, to me, it's not the mad people. It's not the mad people or the skeptics. It's the it's the people, you know. It's it's the taxi driver. It's the, the you know, it's your neighbour. Yeah, yeah, taxi driver. Yeah, yeah. A lot of some readers taxi drivers. Um, um, uh, I, I think it's um, you know. No, I think I think if you go out into the world and ask people what do they think of climate change, then you're not talking to the Christopher Bookers or, or Lord Monktons or, or all the all the others. You are talking to people who want to be persuaded. Why have yet to be persuaded, or think that it's a government conspiracy? And they, you know, people of Britain, the people of the world, aren't stupid. And you know, I mean, it's a shame, but it's a fact that temperatures in the U.S. went down last year. You know, they they actually went down. It, well, it didn't warm. So so, you know, people's evidence of their own eyes and ears. They thought, well, you know, where is this climate change? And and when you're faced with a, you know, a frozen Britain for a couple of months, then what you've been told about global warming, is it true or is it not true? It just seems that people make those judgments based on you know, the things around them. They're not talking to the, the scientists that we have the privilege of talking to every day. And, and sometimes even those scientists, and, and we've seen this in recent months, that you know, they, they have moments where they, they get things wrong. So um, I think the sceptics we need to worry about is, or not worry about, or take, take into account, <coughs> the scepticism is what we need to take into account, not the sceptics. And we need to take into account when we're writing that sometimes when you say climate change, people won't believe that it's happening. And therefore you have to represent the people on the other side of the argument or actually detail where this information's come from, much more than we did last year, I think all of us probably... We're, we're on a little roller coaster of hype last year where every press release came through, you know, name check, climate change, this is happening, that's happening, as if we all know it and it's all a fact, you know. Well, let's justify that, and maybe that's a good thing that we have to go and justify every fact as it happens. So, so that's my thought on skeptics. Uh, uh, the following point was on, uh, uh, on skeptics too. Um, no, Jeremy Clarkson just oh, basically writes for the sun, you know, people wanted to be Prime Minister in, in the UK. You know, he speaks with a very, you know, common sense, matter of fact view. Sure, he represents the car industry, but a lot of people listen. And I know, eventually, Jeremy will come <coughs> out. But we have to, you know, we have to take into account public opinion on that. So it was, it was about science. It was your last oh, point about science. science. Yeah. What should these I guys think, be yeah. doing? Yeah, I, I think um, in terms of the the, the reaction of, of scientists, I, I think. Um, it's very difficult um, how you you know put yourself out front. Nobody's nobody really wants to carry the whole weight of climate change on their back. So sometimes, if there is an argument, scientists maybe duck the question or they think that's for someone else to answer. And I think sometimes that's a difficult thing for journalists to understand because we want to ask the, the questions that get under the skin and say, "Well, what do you think? What do you know?" And sometimes that's maybe why they duck it. Hey. Um, just on the um, uh, on the, the scientists and what, what scientists should do. First of all, um, scientists reacted disastrously to the emails when they first came out. Um, on the train to Copenhagen, we had a sort of a you know a, a <coughs> debate 
uh, with the vice chair of the IPCC there and some other people and the head of uh, the UN Environment Programme, Akim Steiner. And I, again, it was established something I'm on because <coughs> when they were asked about the emails, what they said was, those emails were stolen. You know, don't forget, those emails were stolen. And it's like, no one cares if they're stolen. You know, it, as no, the authenticity was not in doubt by that stage. People knew they were real. And if you just stand there and your, your first line of defence is the emails were stolen, that makes it look like you haven't got a better argument. Uh, the politicians' that expenses were stolen as well, and nobody's not That's not a defence. And the fact that they used it as a defence made it seem like they had nothing better to say, which was just disastrous. Um, on, on other reactions from the scientists uh, at that SMC briefing, I, I felt um, a great deal of uh, uh, sympathy for the scientists there because they were clearly saying we're here to talk about the science, we can't say, we can't say Pachari should resign and we can't say, uh, you know, whether Phil Jones acted uh, badly because, you know, there's a there's a, 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 an investigation going on and so on they said very clearly we can't say that we can't do that and they got people, you know, some journalists seem to think that if you ask the question often enough and bully people long enough that they will turn around and say, well, yes, actually, I can say, sorry, you should resign. No, no. People in that position, they're scientists, they're respectable scientists, they can't come up with things like that. And it's not their business. Their, their business is to talk about science. Just accept that. You know, and so, I, you know, I really felt that the scientists there did a perfectly good job uh, of talking about the science, and they weren't able to talk about things that, you know, that they can't talk about. What's unfair about that? Um, on, on the sceptics, I think you are going to see more stories on sceptics, um, and you're going to see more sort of opinion pieces and things like that from sceptics. What, what's happened is that a lot of people uh, think that they have now been given permission to be sceptical, <coughs> to, to, to publicly doubt uh, climate change. Um, and the thing is that, that people think that being a sceptic is clever because, you know, they, people should be sceptical. Because, look, what is the opposite of sceptical? This is the key question. What's the opposite of sceptical? The opposite of sceptical is gullible, really, isn't it? You know? So if you're not a sceptic, you're, you're kind of gullible. That's, that's the quite people's mind work. So, so, you know, what you've got to do, the first thing I think you've got to do is reclaim the word sceptics. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'd agree with uh, all, all that. Eminent, eminent good sense, as usual, from us, Harvey. Um, I, I don't find the level of scepticism surprising at all. I mean, you know, th this, is a, this is something where the major impacts are projected not tomorrow, not next year, but emerging slowly and with variations over decades, and not primarily in this part of the world. So I don't find it surprising that, that when there's a cold winter, whatever people say, it can't be climate change. It's not really something, I don't think, which is a function of how climate change is communicated. It's a function of basic human nature, how well or how poorly science is understood, how well or poorly people get the nuances of things that scientists are saying. You know, I mean, it doesn't <coughs> get reduced to this simple question, is climate change happening? Well, I mean, in a sense, it's a, it's a meaningless question, and the meaningful questions are far more nuanced, far more complex, and far more numerous than that. But that's what it often gets, gets reduced to. And until there's, you, you can make an argument that until such a time as, uh, you 
you know, this country and others produce uh, uh, school leavers at 18 by, by, the, by the drove who are fully versed in getting to grips with this kind of complexity, who are, who are better at language than they are, who are better at science than they are, who are better at maths than they are, that it's actually pretty much a vain hope to expect the sort of full panoply of, uh, of the climate science message to be taken on board. So I, that would that, be my first point. I don't think it's um, surprising. In, in the opinion poll that uh, the BBC took part in a few weeks ago, there was actually uh, a crumb of comfort there for scientists. Now David's written about this, I have as well. Yes, the level of overall scepticism had increased. When they asked, uh, they, they took a subset of respondents who said they had been aware of stories like Climate Gate and Glacier Gate. I think it was about half the respondents had been aware of these things. <coughs> now, in that subgroup, they had actually become less critical of climate science during that period, i.e. the kind of assumption <coughs> that Climate Gate, Glacier Gate, etc., was would automatically reduce trust among people who read about it was not borne out in that opinion poll. Now, why that is, I don't know. Is it a real effect? I mean, the numbers in the poll were, were pretty small. But nevertheless, that I think if you can pick up anything from that, it possibly is that communicating this stuff is not necessarily a bad thing. But scientists are in a bit of a vice here, because when you look at climate scientists who have gone further than the science, who've tried to speak in everyday language, they get pilloried and vilified for doing so, for putting over what they, you know, what is perceived in some quarters and as an alarmist, uh, as an alarmist way of, uh, alarmist message that, you know, it's not their job, it's your job to do science. That's the criticism you get at that point. So I'm not quite sure, you know, how you win, and it must be, you know, you must, climate scientists must look at astrophysicists and think, well, I'd love to work in such a, you know, politically uncontroversial <coughs> role as that. But I think good communication is the key. I was quite uh, pleasantly su uh, uh, su surprised in a way, not very surprised, but in Na Nature Geoscience at the weekend had this piece about hurricanes and climate change, where they basically tried to produce a kind of distillation of the science, if you like a mini IPCC, but just on hurricanes. And that there may be something in that that scientists can do, getting together and producing reports uh, on key issues, which are fairly simple to read, certainly simpler than Nature Geoscience, but which sort of bring together the kind of uh, latest knowledge and which cross the board, because that particular report had uh, on it, uh, among its authorship, Kerry Emanuel, who's often accused of being alarmist on this issue, and Chris Lancy, who resigned from one of the IPCC working groups because he thought the IPC was being too alarmist. So they sort of crossed the, the scientific, the genuine scientific divide there and brought them all together. So it's something that sort of everyone can embrace. Um, you, can I speed you up? Yes, sorry. of course. Sorry. So, yeah, just sorry. So one, one more point. I mean, the decision at the IPCC level may be taken out of its own hands by this review that the UN has announced that the, the, UN, that the UNEP governing council today in Bali, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they've decided that there will be a review into how the IPCC <coughs> works and what its conclusions are. We can expect that to emerge during this year. But yeah, the sceptics and scepticism very much here to stand. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, just to clarify about climate sceptics, like when, when I use the term climate sceptics, I mean it's something very specific. Um, I don't think a taxi driver saying, like, yeah, it's freezing, isn't it? It's a climate sceptic. Um, I don't think someone who doesn't want to pay a thousand pounds a year for electricity bill to pay for wind turbines is a climate sceptic. I think a climate sceptic is someone who knows better and then takes a perverse objection to the science. 
full pathological motives. I mean, it's very specific. Um, I think that um, I've just insulted them again, haven't I? Yeah. But, um, I think on, on the second point, um, I think that it's incredibly naive of the Science Media Centre to organise a briefing with climate scientists in the middle of the greatest debate about the ethics of the behaviour of climate scientists we have ever had, and then not to get them to answer questions on the behaviour of scientists. That's what this is about on a meaningful level. I don't think any of the journalists in the room believe that the, the science of climate change has been undermined by these emails. They were concerned about the way peer review was working, whether the scientists should have been more open with their critics, should they have responded to freedom of information requests. Um, and, and to say that scientists only talk about the science is just not true. If you ask one of the, the people at the briefing with Julia Slinger, head of the Met Office, you ask her whether the Met Office should have more funding for supercomputers, she won't say, oh, I'm not talking about that's policy, I'm only talking about the science. Oh, I so want to come back, but I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> um, okay, over to you. I've heard enough of them now for a while, um, and I know there's lots of important scientists and interested people in this room. So over to you. You can ask questions, you can make short contributions, as long as it's fairly brief. We want to know what you think. So hands, please. Woman here, straight away. Um, I'd like to ask about, um, I guess, all the people on the panel. Sorry, can I stop you for one second? I'm going to take at least two or three people at a time, so please don't try and answer every single question, because we've only got half an hour. Sorry. Okay, about regulation of bad science journalism. So, for example, the headline story on the BBC's night page today, um, <coughs> the catch part of that story says that whales are the forests of the ocean, which is empirically wrong. Uh, the BBC Science Okay. And any other? Oh, sorry. Can everyone wait for the mic? I'm such a bad chair. Yes. And say who you are. I'm from the Science Media Centre. Damn it. I just want to ask the panel whether they think that anything uh, good will come out the other side of this. Uh, will we be better off in the end having uh, gone through this uh, climate storm? Gentlemen at the back there. Uh, uh, Larry Newton from the UK Climate Impact Programme. I'd like to make two sort of short statements and then ask a question. One is that I'm rather disturbed by the language that's been used in the course of this debate. Scepticism is a legitimate and reasonable activity. Climate change denial okay. is. And I think that there is still, contrary <coughs> to what has been said, a combination of mad and bad of the denial end, and they're being extraordinarily successful. They're acting much cleverer than we are at getting their messages. Can we, so can we just take a couple of seconds to get our. Can I, I can speak loud enough to get yeah. anyone to hear back? It's alright. I think it's for the recording. Um, <coughs> so I'd, I'd like to reclaim a legitimacy for the role of, of, um, of the sceptic. In, in true terms, and, and I beg media people to use either the you know, a, a different term for that. And I think that, um, I, well, I've got quite a lot of potential things that have risen out of it. Similarly, I'm not keen on this notion of the use of this <coughs> gate suffix to all words, because that has, by tradition, implies conspiracy. Now, there might be many things wrong with the processes that, that happened at UEA and within the IPCC, 
but I don't think that they're conspiracies of the same kind of order as the original one. Okay. Brilliant. I, can, I can't let you have more. Sorry. Sorry. Can I just ask this very simple question? Quick question. Why yeah. haven't the, you, the media, instead of, you said theft is not a reasonable defence, but it's a very interesting <coughs> question who stole them and released them. And as far as I've seen, that's never been investigated. Okay. Together with the timing leading up to Copenhagen. Brilliant. Thank you. There was somebody just behind you, wasn't there? No? Was there a hand up there? No? Uh, gentleman here? Um, nobody, we've talked about the skeptics, but we haven't talked about the blogosphere. And I'd like to know what the panel thinks about uh, how great its influence has been <coughs> and whether it has been on balance a good thing or a bad thing. Okay, one more before I bring the panel back. The woman at the back. Yeah, I mean, just very quickly, the, the guy at the back. I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the, the <coughs> term sceptic. And, and unfortunately, it is just now a very, very well-established um, name for, for that, that kind of person. And I think to pretend that it's not and to try and... Well, to pretend that it's not is it, obviously not going to work. To try and reclaim scepticism, I, I think you're quite right. But um, we're actually having a debate in the Guardian. Well, what, what do we call these people? Because it's not fair to call them... Well, there are issues about calling them deniers. People have suggested we call them climate creationists, or um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, we're open to suggestions. And on, on the gate issue, I, I, again, I just think it's um, it, it's it's it is lazy, and it's a just it's a way the media works. But um, you know, do do we do we report the world as it is, or as we would want it to be? Um, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm sure. I'm sure <coughs> that Electrolux and Dyson don't like the word Hoover being used for all vacuum cleaners, but that's the way it is. And I've been through this like David has, and unfortunately, it's the least bad term that there is. And I often <coughs> use it in inverted, count, inverted commas to, you know, illustrate the fact that it's not what I'm entirely happy with. But there basically isn't anything else that encompasses that sort of huge degree. Regulation of bad science journalism. Uh, I don't know the story that you you're talking about, um, but. Journalism can't be regulated. Why not? Because it just can't be. be regulated. Uh, As scientists, we have okay, okay. It, it just it simply can't be. You've got a number of commercial organisations who basically operate within laws of libel, slander, and that's about it. Actually, a few things like insider dealing that have caught newspapers out uh, in in the past, but that that's the way it is. And there is an argument that if you want uh, a free and fair and independent press then you don't regulate them and you don't tell them what to think. That's the downside. You know, the, the, the one thing that you're complaining about is probably the downside of what some people see anyway. It's very much <coughs> the downside. Um, don't have to do um, more, Richard. But no, sure, no. There's a couple other I want to pick. Who stole the emails? Um, we have tried to look at that. I know the Independent has as well. Yeah, it's really yeah. difficult. It's really difficult. You know, I've talked to computer experts and we, we, we just didn't get anywhere with that story. Uh, 24 hour news, <coughs> undeni undeniably bad for accuracy in all sorts of areas, not just climate change. Blogosphere, probably bad, I think. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just say, what about a descriptor in front of skeptic? Couldn't you have hardcore skeptics or scientific skeptics, or would the subby just Sometimes. pull it out? Yeah. Sometimes, depends on the context. Because it's, it's the hardcore campaigning ones that are in a category of their own. I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you need a better word. It's like, yeah. you know, the. You know, we, we, used, we, we had a fabulous old uh, night editor 
who, you know, I, I made a mistake once of growing up with a story and it had something about a pro-life group in it. He said, pro-life, we're all pro-life. They're anti-abortion. You know, and that's what you've got to call them. Um, sadly, I think, you know, now he's gone, that, that standard has slipped. <laughs> you know, the subjects were very, very clever in choosing their name, yeah. you know. Uh, and now you've got to find a better name and an <coughs> iron won't work because that makes them sound like Holocaust to you know. Um, uh, with the 24 um, hour uh, news thing, I think that has, uh, you know, definitely that, that has had a, a, a sort of uh, seriously bad effect on the ability or our ability to um, look into stories in depth. Um, you know, what I was saying earlier about how we paused before we, we published the email story, um, that's increasingly hard to do because there's so much pressure to get things up in the web straight away. Uh, and so on. So, uh, I, I mean, I've got no answers for what to do about that. Um, equally, I've got no answers about what you do about the blogosphere. Um, you know, I mean, it, it is it, it is interesting how, when you look at, um, at, sort of at people's responses on the internet, you know, people's responses to newspaper articles, um, it always astonishes me how, how vicious uh, are people's responses often. And I think that basically on the internet, because people are uh, anonymous, they think that they can say anything and they can be, you know, completely outrageous. And it's horrible, really. Uh, again, I don't know what you mean about that. Either. Um, can I just point out, no one has answered my colleague's question. Ben, can you answer that about, can we learn it, can we do this better? Can anything good come out of all this bad stuff? Could the debate, the media debate afterwards, be better than the media one before? You, in fact, talk about all the the climate porn as IPCC. No, I, you know, I think yeah. what doesn't break you makes you stronger. And really, yeah. really, um, you have to be robust about the, uh, these things. <coughs> if I can mention taxi drivers again, and I will. Uh, it, um, the other day, I was talking to somebody who was sceptical about about climate change, <coughs> and, and he's he's. Tr- driving me somewhere and he's talking about the medieval warming period. Well, you know, I, I don't think six months ago there's that depth of knowledge in, in what's going on within climate, the area of climate, from the average person on the street. And I think, I think what's happened is we've all been through a process where every, every aspect of, of climate science has been tested, is being tested. And, and I think it's an important thing. I think we all have to think, well, this is an important area. This is perhaps one of the biggest changes that we're all going to see in our lifetime. How convinced are we of the science in every aspect? And I think <coughs> if you don't discuss that, then it's a serious failure. And if you don't rationalise that to yourself, because we can all accept science as it's handed down to us, but we also have to rationalise it to ourselves. So I think, I think in this way, having this argument is a good thing. I think it helps. I think it helps all of us to, to move on and we've had a, a, like a, a bit of a perfect storm in terms of the climate and all things environment I, I've been doing this job a year and I was do, just sort of noting down the things from the UEA emails to the glaciers to the, the, to the you know terrible winter to the Met Office not predicting it but making long range predictions about obviously what's happening to our world and then and then Toyota recalls the Prius and then <coughs> you're just thinking if David Attenborough was caught in bed with in his news, <laughs> he couldn't get any worse than that <laughs> so uh, I'm just uh, <coughs> I, 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 is that I, in tomorrow's paper? Uh, <laughs>
Um, I'm really keen to get back out to the floor, so please, and this is your talk, we haven't got that much longer, so if you want to make contributions, please do, I've got loads of hands now. Uh, Tim? Are we still doing mics, or are they no, just... We're forgetting them, Tim. Um, Tim Palmer, I'm a climate scientist, and, well, let me ask the question, but let me preface it with a comment. I mean, you mentioned about cold winter and people... <coughs> plenty of stories in, in Europe and the US about the cold winter, you know, and is that disproved climate change? Well, I've never seen, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never seen a picture in the newspaper showing temperature anomalies right across the world. And the fact that across Greenland, across Hudson Bay, across Canada, across Africa, across much of the tropics, across much of the southern hemisphere, temperatures are positive. So we're seeing, we sort of, you know, for some reason we're seeing cold anomalies where newspapers in mass happen to be printed. My question then is, and another, and another related... Another related issue, maybe there's a causal connection. Another related, um, you know, issue is about the Met Office forecast. That you know, any scientist knows that a, a short-range forecast, the skill of it, has got really nothing to do with the predictions of long-term climate. So my question is, how do scientists like myself and others in the room get those messages stated clearly in a way that the public? I mean, we can write things on online blogospheres and all that stuff, but as the lady said, you know, that has a limited. Span. How do you get a headline in the Guardian or somewhere? Scientists fight back. This is the truth. How do you do it? Uh, right, there's a lot of, of hands there. Okay, there's loads now. Uh, guy here, and then woman behind, and then I'm coming to you. Okay, uh, Alex Thomas, I'm in the Earth Science Department here. Um, can I ask a, a, I guess, an annoying question about the um, uh, glacier kind of vents or whatever? Um, <laughs> when that came out, there was a story that was portrayed in a lot of the media as a failure of the science. Um, but it, it was it was a mistake in working group two of the IPCC report, which is which is a social science report, uh, and the, the working group one had a thirty odd page section on glaciers. Um, and anyone that had, would have read the whole report surely would have noticed that this was a complete non-story and science is sound and, and this is remarkable that there's only one mistake in like a 6,000 word or whatever it was, 6,000 page document. So my question is, how many of the panel have actually read the IPCC report? <laughs> <laughs>
and climate change is frightening. I know climate change is a fact. But you go and tell anyone out there what you, you know that you think that it is a fact, and most people just laugh at you. Okay, there's one more yeah. there, and then I'm going to come back briefly to the speakers and then come back out. Yes. I've got one observation and one question. The observation is just about this notion of there having been a perfect storm recently when it comes to environmental reporting. Um, I actually think it, we have to look beyond just the environmental issues to look at what's, what's gone on between uh, when it comes to the relationship between the public and science. I think we have to look at things like swine flu, um, MMR, um, BSE, um, the Millennium Bug, you know, there are these various issues that um, were much, much more immediate threats as they were seen and where the, there was a huge great deal of alarm and the, the media kind of, I think, in lots of cases, whipped that up. And, the, you know, the issues turned out not to be anything like as serious as, as was suggested. And I think that's been a huge factor in the way the public um, has, has lost interest and lost faith in the notion of climate change. Um, but my question really is that I, I work in television, and the experience I've had in, in recent months is, is um, a, a sense that uh, at the commissioning editor level, the people that basically what's on our screens. There's a view that um, environmental programmes were what happened in 2009, <coughs> in the same way that, you know, three or four years ago there was the resurgence of shiny floor television and before that there was the, you know, the garden makeover show. You know, it's, it's been just one sort of phase of, of, of television, um, of, of making programmes about the environment. And we've come through that now, we're now waiting to see what the next thing is, which I personally find utterly terrifying that, that there's this sort of complete um, lack of sense of Okay, let, let's come back to the panel really briefly. Can I just add one tiny thing to Tim's point? Because I think I've seen a couple of editorials like the Observer leaders saying we will have to get better at reporting uncertainty, and I think that's a real mere culpa for the media. That actually they, you know, the, the Met Office guys sit and give you a seminar before they tell you mm -hmm. it's going to be a barbecue summer on probabilities and uncertainties and all of that, and the only thing that appears the next day is the barbecue summer, and then six months later they blame the scientists. It, even though they ignored their thing. So is there any prospect that in the future these papers will be true to their editorials and allow for a headline that says, new uncertainties in climate research? <laughs> oh, you're all you're just laughing. <laughs> Anyone? Anyway, Rather than just laugh at me, give us some hope. Um, I mean, on the uncertainty thing, I, I mean, I, I'm in my first year in doing this, I was only appointed it a year ago, um, and um, I, it struck me as unusual that the week of Copenhagen is when the, the Met Office come out with their predictions, and World WMO also come out with their predictions for you know the next ten-year period and for the next year, and I, I, I personally thought the timing perhaps could have been better. If you want to have an organisation that that champions its integrity, then I think you need to remove yourself from that link of being just before Copenhagen so that it's seen as, as being the, 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 the tipper that, that pipes up public opinion. And, and I, I, I think that's probably a matter of perception rather than, than anything else, but, but I thought the Met Office was slightly um, playing at, um, not playing, but, but slightly leading 
ahead of the uh, ahead of the science. I felt slightly, um, and and I know they've they've been. Yeah, just about They always release it at that time. I know. I know. I only understood that. But in <laughs> fact, they they had moved some of their projections from releasing in January. They'd moved some of them forward. So some other of them forward. Uh, this is from Vicky Pope in December. I, it, we, there was some discussion at, at the time, but it just felt a little bit, uh, uh, um, a, a little bit um, provocative. I thought at that time. That said, um, uh, what the gentleman said about worldwide temperatures. I, uh, I'm told the Express today has, you know, you will never believe temperatures are up uh, across the world in January, and and of course they are, you know, and and that is that is the case. I'm just talking really about the perception of what we're talking about. I'm not talking about, the, you know, because we along here won't write the snow story that you see on the, you know, on the front of the paper every day, but people do make that link to it, and you do find that that forms part <coughs> of, the, of the debate, um, and, and it's difficult to, to disentangle the two when that's a part of people's daily conversations. And it was a wonderful piece from Giles Corrin saying, enough about, you know, of linking the two. But it does become linked to people's minds. And when you have statistics like the worst winter in 30 years, then it, you know, it, it, it does affect people's thinking on climate. OK, we're going to have to speed up a bit, I think. On, on the question of uncertainties, well, well, our readers are very well versed in uh, risk and uncertainties and so on. And so you can present them with quite nuanced stories saying that there's a you know a probability of this, whatever. But uh, I think it's very difficult uh, in other branches of the media to do that. Um, and there's a temptation if people <coughs> say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly sure about this. Ah, nearly sure. So you're not quite sure. You know, and of course you can't treat science like that. Science isn't, just isn't susceptible to that kind of treatment. Um, on th this issue of sort of, you know, climate scientists sort of fighting back, look, I'm really sorry, but you have a problem, climate scientists, and your problem is that you're not news. Yeah. And that is, you know, th there's there's not, not much you can do about that. You know, <coughs> the IPCC, when it came out in 2007, if you want you to can get come back in a minute. <laughs> if you want to get in the newspaper, you have to make news. And it's the sceptics who are making the news, and it's the, the, the problems with the IPCC that are making the news. Problems with emails that are making the news, you know. But to you know, you're not going to get a headline that says climate. Guess what? Still changing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and when the IPCC came on, you know, we all covered that. We covered it very extensively. Mm. You know, I, I think personally, I think um, it'd be good if the IPCC could come out with some stuff more often. You know, mm. we, we've got to wait till 2014 for the next one. Mm. You know, I mean, what will be happening by then? As to what will make people less sceptical, um, a disaster. Um, People are not very good at thinking about long-term risks and long-term planning, um, and so you know, unless you, if you tell people that you know, in 20, 30 years' time, uh, there's going to be you know no ice at the poles or whatever, or there's going to be you know the heat in Africa is going to be you know, going to be high or whatever, people aren't very good at processing that, um, and so you know, it, it, if you had a sort of short-term disaster, then that might focus people's minds, but, you know, that's not really something to hope for, is it? Yeah, um, the temperature anom anomalies, um, I put something on my blog back in January about that, um, and linked to a chart, uh, New York Times did the same thing. I say that not to sort of big myself up, but just to make <coughs> the, 
the interesting point that this was news to many of our editors. Um, the people that had been very happy to see, you know, uh, blanket coverage of snow across Britain didn't actually know that this wasn't. Um, and and this, to my, this, to my mind, is actually one of the big unspoken biases in British journalism is that we talk about Britain as though it were the world. And if we get round that, we'd be doing everyone a service, not only in terms of climate change, but everything else. Um, your point about maybe I didn't express myself uh, very well when we were talking about newspapers and so on. I, I would love there to be some sort of mechanism for producing a world where broadcasters and newspapers didn't produce crap. I would love there to be some sort of mechanism by which you could go back to a newspaper and say, but this was wrong, and the newspaper would have to change it, or whatever. And that they should get into a cycle where people are actually worried about uh, more, more about sort of truth and balance and objectivity and so on than most journalists do now. But you have to look at the realities of that. And if, if someone is to, if you're, if you're say, you know, journalists have to be fair, newspapers have to be fair, then someone has to decide what fair is. And you can easily see how that can be used for political ends. And you, you know who's going to who's going to put the person in place who decides what's fair. So this is a debate probably that you know, can go on for hours and hours. But it, it's problematical. It's not quite as simple as that. Much so, I would love it to be. Um, now, glaciers. Um, uh, there were two questions really thrown up by the whole email thing. First of all, one, one concerned the behaviour of scientists, and the other concerned the integrity of the underlying science. And I completely agree that in m most media reporting, those two questions were conflated and they should not have been. And final point, what would persuade, um, I agree with Fiona, some sort of disaster that was uh, unequivocally laid at the door of, of climate change or rapidly rising temperatures, disappearing Arctic ice, all of those predictions coming true, that would probably change the public mood. Briefly, David, sorry, I'll start yeah, I'll with um, There was a question about the IPCC. Um, one of those great statistics that should be true but probably isn't is that... Um, the average PhD thesis is read by 1.4 people, including the person who wrote it. Um, I, think it's <laughs> I think it's probably the same for the IPCC report. I'm not sure that anyone has read the entire thing from start to finish. I haven't. I have read the summary of the policymakers of each of the three working groups, and I did write a story that pointed out that, in fact, many of the scientists in working group one who worked on the glacier section were very unhappy with this mistake that was made by, I'm trying to find the guy, as you say, social scientists. They did call them social scientists. Um, there was a question, Tim, about the, how scientists fight back. Well, you're not going to like the answer to this, but this is the truth. Um, if you want to fight back in the media, you have to fight on the territory that the media is interested in. So you're not going to get a story about the scientists fighting back saying the temperature's still going up. If you, I mean, I've, I've been on the phone to people about this all week. Where are the Royal Society? Where are the organisations that speak for the scientists on the issues of science in society? Right? You, you guys get a petition together, get 2,000 signatures blaming the media for something or for a, 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 attacking coverage or go to the Press Complaints Commission, do something which takes the agenda and takes the story forward. This is the key about newspapers and the media in general. The story has to progress and although we don't like the territory the story has progressed onto, it has taken it forward in the eyes of many people in, in the industry. And what you all wanted to say to the woman from Friends of the Earth is that scientists have a PR agency. It's called the Science Media Centre. Yes? Right, listen... Um, can I just come back briefly on what... Yeah, really briefly. Uh, the one point, uh, which is what's going to change people. 
I don't think it's going to be a disaster. I think it's going to be walking into a Tesco's and finding, as I did the other day, there's the zero carbon Tesco's in, in Britain. And, 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 or going to meet Nike and, and telling me that the footprint of their you know, trainer is, uh, the carbon footprint is reduced. I, I'm not saying that they're, you know, that, that these guys are the people who uh, have the science at their fingertips, but I'm saying that these are the companies that are changing the way they are doing things because they believe the science, and they are doing that, you know, at a rapid pace. And I think when people see all those markers that, as, as we do, well, certainly as I do from press releases every day, of the number of people who, a number of companies who are doing something in this area because they believe it and they believe it's an oncoming thing and they're not put off by the fact of some leaked emails, they're not put off by, by, by a cold winter, they are actually changing the way they do things, be it airlines, be it the, you know, oil companies, whoever they do, they are all, all changing rapidly. And okay. Well, they will <coughs> have to change more rapidly, but I think that is how it will filter down to people when they see that private enterprise across the world is changing. Okay. Um, look, I, I can't bear to finish this just now, but can I just double check with everyone that they're happy to stay for another 10, 15 minutes? Is that okay? Ask the panellists. I have to <laughs> ask the panellists. Have you got trains sure. to catch? Can you do 10, 15 minutes? Don't want to keep you from wine, but I've just seen some interesting hands. So if we take one final round of contributions, <laughs> uh, yeah, really interesting. Um, Miles, I'm going to take you first, and then so this is really short questions or contributions. The last round, Miles. Yes. I've changed my mind on the questions. I want to pick up on your point. Yeah. Um, so do you think actually <coughs> will only this issue will only actually matter when scientists don't need? to get on television. Exactly. Essentially, I mean, you were saying we need to get a better strategy for getting on television. I'm accused of by a lot of my colleagues, so I'm Miles Allen from the University, um, from of, of, of pushing myself forward sometimes. Uh, actually, uh, just for the record, we, we don't particularly, it's very uncomfortable being on television. You get asked questions, you really, really know that you can't answer in the 26 seconds that you're allocated. And you know you're going to look a clown to your colleagues because you got the answer wrong, and the editor's going to help, hit, you, hit you because you took 29 seconds instead of 26. No matter what happens. So the, the if we get it's when professionals take over the issue, and it essentially ceases to be something that you all have to broker with taxi drivers, that's when you're going to make progress. But isn't that a little depressing for democracy? But the only way this issue can actually be addressed is by Cutting the people out of it. I, I mean, I think it's. Uh, a don't answer them. Don't answer them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, otherwise we're uh, uh, Very quickly, I don't think you can blame the mainstream media for the climate gate. I think the mainstream media was led by the nose, by the right wing denialist bloggers, which cooked up this whole conspiracy, which would have died before Copenhagen. This would have been a very short story, but it kept on, kept on coming up and coming, coming up. And it had to be covered because you, you know, if you're a journalist, you can't bear to ignore something that everyone else is covering, even if you know it's a total non-story, which kind of get is. Isn't it? Changes nothing about the the data. Changes nothing about anything we knew. If anyone who knows the background can establish that very clearly. And um, what I want to, uh, to, to I, what I think is more interesting is that this is basically a proxy war of ideologies. This is nothing to do with climate science. It's nothing to do with temperatures. This is to do with what people's perceptions are of the implications of reducing carbon emissions, which the right-wing and libertarian sort of political ideology uh, can't accept. Uh, and therefore, it attacks climate science as a kind of uh, proxy for this. So how can we get away from this sort of I I this ideological hidden battle which is underlying all of this, all of this kind of um, controversy? 
Oh my god, this is all so interesting. Right, uh, woman here, and then I'll come back down to these two really quickly. Issues. 
Okay, really nice question. I'm going to start with you this time. So yeah, sure. Um, I'm on that one. I remember. Um, <laughs> and I've forgotten it. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> about the difference between environment and what environment you're quite right. I mean, uh, there is a tendency to see environment through a prism of climate change now, and it is a point that I try and make to 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 people, uh, my editors, that. Um, the reason people care about climate change is because of the impact on the natural world and on species and on human society. And many of those things are under stress now. And if people care about little fur animals dying off in 50 years because of temperature rise, they will care about them being killed off now because of the forest being chopped down or they're being put in boxes and taken away as pets. Um, so, yes, I mean, you're quite right. And, and I'm going to answer kind of most of the questions were about sort of society and media. And, 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 and we could almost be having this very same debate a year ago, I and mean, it's not predicated on the fact that the climate, the, the, the emails have, have, have produced this debate, there's very legitimate questions about how we reflect uncertainty, how we get across, um, as you said, this um, issue of debate, uh, is there a debate, on, on where is the debate, um, and, and I think I'll make two, two points, one is that climate change is a very, very difficult problem for society and for the media because of its scale, it works on geological timescales way beyond uh, one human's lifetime effectively. I know we can see changes in 50 years maybe, but we're talking about changes by the end of the century and all of us will be dead. Um, it, it, it's something that cannot be proven until it has happened, and so you have to take a precautionary approach, which is very difficult in policy making. Um, and it, it, it's, it is impossible, as, as um, we said at the beginning, it's impossible for, for people to, to believe with the evidence of their own eyes. They have to take issues on trust. and. And one of the things we've kind of skirted around here is you, before you have four extremely straight journalists who work for organisations who want to get this right. I know we don't always get it right, but we really do want to get this right. There are people out there who produce newspapers and who write websites <coughs> who don't want to get it right. They want to put forward an agenda. And that is an issue that isn't just faced by climate scientists and people that care about climate change. And that's a much wider question for society. And I'll make one final observation, and it comes a little down to the fact that the role of the media in society reflecting issues like climate change has, has <coughs> changed, I think, because whereas once we used to be the presenter of facts, now people get their facts from the website, and from television, from the radio, and they're getting much quicker than waiting for the next day's news, I'm talking about newspapers. Um, so we've moved very, very strategically into trying to provide analysis and commentary. And, 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 and I think that the danger there is that too quickly we move from an issue where we need to establish the facts to an issue where we're providing analysis and commentary. And until you have that really solid evidence base, I don't think you have um, uh, well, a solid base to provide that analysis and commentary. And I think there is a question how much people want to pay for people to do research and to establish the facts. Because we, we live in a world now where people expect everything for free on the internet. And you know, sales of the Guardian. I don't know. I think the FT is doing okay, but you know, we're, we're really struggling. People aren't buying newspapers anymore because people expect to get it all for free. And and, and there is there is a there's a bigger issue here about what we want our media to do for us. And and at the moment, I agree. I don't think we are uh, talking generally. Um, probably providing the service on this issue that that we should. But the evidence that people want to pay for that service is is decreasing. Yeah, uh, to pick up a few of these points, is the British media influential abroad? Yes, I think it is. I mean, the BBC is, the Guardian is, the FT is. I don't know about the Sun. 
the most influential um, media organisations globally are the news agencies, uh, Reuters, AFP, AP, and fortunately, I think by and large, those guys do a really good job on climate change. They tend to report things very, very straight, very factually, no nonsense, no spin, do a very good job, I think, personally. Um, skeptics as editors, absolutely. Uh, in an organisation the size of the BBC, also, there are many, many editors. There are big ones who we never see. They're like Fiona's when <coughs> sit in a room surrounded by underlings. And then there are all the editors. Look at, the, for example, the five live schedule through, through the day. Each of those programmes has a different editor. And they can all, if, 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 and, and I know for a fact that a number of them have harboured you know, clandestinely sceptical <laughs> thoughts. And uh, now I think um, Fiona said it kind of gave them permission yeah. to come out and yeah. revisit all those things. Yeah. A lot of journalists um, uh, and people who are pretty hard-bitten. They, they don't like pe people telling them what facts are because they know, because they are sceptical about this, that and the other. So suddenly, you know, and, and even in the BBC, some of us, some of us correspondents have got criticism from the editors. You told us this was a done deal. You told us Copenhagen <coughs> was going to be the global solution. You don't know what you're talking about. Now we know it's a pack of lies. <coughs> it wasn't quite in those strident terms, but that was the implication. <laughs> so completely, yeah. Um, and we, we, we're not always that influential, us correspondents. We're actually quite humble people. Um, uh, uh, Mark, I absolutely agree with you. We are in the, in the middle of a, of, a, of a war of politics, and scientists have become a pawn in this war, and so have media organisations, particularly those like the BBC, that are state-funded. And I think that is the key to understanding this. It's not an issue of right or wrong. Because if you say, which is right or wrong, uh, out of the Labour Party policies or Conservative Party's policies, it's a meaningless question to ask, because in the arena of politics, it's not about right and wrong. It's about belief and perception and getting your message across. Ronald Reagan was a very successful president because he was very good at getting the message across. The content of the message was almost almost irrelevant. Um, and lastly, the climate change versus overall environment. Completely agree. In fact, uh, I did a programme on this on Radio 4 in the, um, in the summer as climate change uh, hijacked the broader environmental agenda. Got quite a lot of abuse from various courses for doing it, but there you go. In fact, I was hoping that this year having sorted out climate change in Copenhagen, <laughs> get on with doing biodiversity and all these things. Until the frigid emails. Copenhagen is sending it to fast, so here we are, back to Glasgow. Nice. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of us were expecting to maybe have a little bit of a lull yeah. out of Copenhagen. <laughs> sure. yeah. um, just on the um, question of editors being sceptical, yeah, editors are trained to be sceptical, um, and uh, <coughs> trained to kind of kick the tires on stories um, and to, to you know uh, to really take an opposing point of view. So you you know that and that's perfectly reasonable. But I think most editors are actually reasonable people. And if you say, look, you know um, this is this is what skeptics are saying, but this is what you know mainstream scientists are saying, they accept that and they will expect uh, you know accept balance. Um, so most editors on on sort of papers that don't have an agenda, and as David was saying earlier, some, some do, and that's completely different. Um, this influence abroad, yeah, we have four completely separate international editions for all around the world, and uh, I think it's slightly more than half of our uh, circulation is actually uh, abroad. And we used to, I think people used to have this attitude that in some parts of the world people weren't interested in the environment. 
And that's, that's been shown to be completely <coughs> untrue. That actually, you know, our readers everywhere are interested in environmental stories and are more interested than they've ever been. Um, and partly it's because, you know, of, of what Ben was saying earlier, that this is something that is, is taking over business, you know, Tesco's and the Nikes of this world and so on. Um, and, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think that's very positive. Um, on the issue of, um, you know, sort of putting the, the, this message across, and scientists regaining trust uh, after climate <coughs> change, after climate change, I think the, um, the best thing that... Uh, climate scientists could do is get David Attenborough out more because everyone in this country trusts everything that David Attenborough says. Um, you know, quite rightly. And you know, he, he's hugely influential and he should be out there all the time, you know, because he's fantastic. And if people if he says, you know, climate change is real, then people believe him. As long as he's not having affairs. <laughs> we won't mention that. <laughs> yeah, rumour will start here tonight. Um, I, 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 I don't think there's very much I can add to those answers um, because I'm painfully aware that a room full of students on a Friday night at court is a hell of a rush for the door. Um, uh, but I just wanted to answer briefly Miles' point. Was, uh, um, I, I thought, yes, uh, uh, I agree with you that the scientists don't need to come forward with the with the answer, this is the truth, and that certainly has some headline I want to steer away from. But um, the the, um, the the idea uh, to me is that what we've been talking about is a, is a battle that's been lost within the area of climate change. But the, <coughs> certainly, the greater war, I think, will be won. To use a terrible analogy, uh, an analogy by <coughs> the scientists and and with the work that they've done. And, and the work that, that, that continually appears across the world. And I don't think no one scientist needs to stand up and say that. And I think if we're going to look back in five years of time and said, say what went wrong, then what we've been talking about today won't matter at all. What I think we'll look back on is a failure of the political process in Copenhagen much more than the emails. And I think, I think that is that's the sad thing for the world. Okay, that's a really lovely, positive way. Can I just have two seconds uh, to make one point? I think the, the main lesson that the SMC, Science Media Centre, has learned is that every media frenzy is an opportunity and a threat. And this is an opportunity for climate scientists. A lot of times they're not that interested in you. Now they are interested in you. Miles, if you've got a column, you can place it now. Six months ago, you may not have been able to. And I think that it's absolutely critical. I spoke to a scientist last week who actually said the word, climate change is too important to debate. The truth is that climate change is too important not to debate. And the responsibility here for scientists and for journalists, for scientists and for journalists, is to ensure that that debate is informed by the best, most accurate science. And that is the responsibility of journalists, and that is the responsibility of scientists. And both of us need to step up to the plate. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you to our amazing... <laughs>